Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Hello, everyone. This is Mike Lewis with the Fanalytics podcast. Today, we are going to talk about a different realm of fandom, something that might be uh, strike you as very different. Uh, overwhelmingly, our focus is on the world of sports, but even there, we've got a relatively loose definition of fandom. You know, we'll delve into politics. Um, we'll talk about the player side of sports. So really anything that drives intense consumer or fan loyalty. Uh, recently, um, in, in one of my other jobs, I'm the director of the Marketing Analytics Center at Emory University, and we've had a really interesting new opportunity pop up in the realm of esports. This week, we are announcing a research partnership between the Marketing Analytics Center at Emory University and the Skillshot Media Division of Hi Res Studios. Hi Res is a local video game maker and producer in the Atlanta area that is best known for the game of Smite. Paladins is one of their other uh, major hits. Joining me today as we delve into the, the realm of esports is, um, well, the person in the world that knows, in my world, knows more about esports than anything else. Um, one of my PhD students, who will soon lose that title and just become Dr. Han, uh, Zhe Han. Welcome, Zhe. Thanks. Hi, everyone. I'm a longtime gamer. My name is Joe, and love to be here. We also have, as usual, we've got Ada Chong on the third mic. Thanks for having me, Mike. And so we're gonna we're gonna play this one by ear in terms of in terms of participation. I mean, I really wanted Joe here because, well, like I said, how long have you been um, how long have you been interested in gaming? Probably forever in terms of gaming, right? Yeah. But how long in terms of esports or well, what's your definition of esports? Well, I think for any kinds of sports has to involve some kind of professional league, right? So I think the first time I watched some um, pro players play esports events is probably back in 2012. 2012? Yeah. And what what game was that? That's uh, Defense of the Asians, Dota. How was esports regarded back then in 2012? Not highly. Uh, people don't take it seriously. Only like we so we talk about like nerds or geeks playing okay. games. They Trying to make it a thing. How did you even become aware enough to watch it? Well, and, and how did you watch it? Oh, I mostly watch it on the online streaming platforms. So I've been a player of that game for a while, and I realized there's some pros like playing professional games, and they happen to broadcast it over the internet. So that's how I get involved. So this is something that really kind of evolved organically, that I'm assuming, sort of an online yeah. gaming community. Yeah. Um, professional or competitions start mm -hmm. to form, and then someone gets the bright idea of let let's put it out there for, for yeah. viewing. It really started from the communities, then becomes something involves more money and have a bigger impact. Where, how are you watching it back in two thousand and twelve? There's because this was uh, mm -hmm. this was pre Twitch, right? Yeah, that's what's pre Twitch. So. Well, back then, there's very little live games. A lot of the games are kind of published over the um, video viewing websites, yeah, like YouTube in China, but we have a counterpart in China. So that's like a lot of the games I watched. Not many live games, mostly like when people play it in-game, then people upload it to the websites and then kind of watch it. 
So this is really kind of a fan-driven phenomenon, right? Yeah. Or, or a player-driven phenomenon. Yeah. You know, guys, people love these games mm-hmm. and then want to originally, I, I guess, put them out there in terms of showing people what they've done. Yeah, like when, when it started, most people just doing it as a hobby. They don't really kind of intend to make money out of it. They Most of the time, they can't well, when they start. And, and so going back to 2012, did you, I assume the term esports didn't exist back then? I don't think so. <laughs> it's <Okay>. just games. <laughs> okay, and so why were you thinking of it as uh, watching a professional sporting event, or was it more just kind of, well, you know, what was it? It's like, mm-hmm. I want to see how the experts do this. I want to see mm-hmm. what a really great player does. Yeah, I think a lot of it's involved, so I do it this way in my games. Now, how does the pro player play it differently? How can I improve? And it's much more casual, so you can watch it mostly at home, not like in, instead of going to a real event. Because back then, it's uh, pretty expensive to rent a stadium or rent a even a studio for to run an event like this. Something just referencing, so esports has has evolved to include both live streaming where you're watching these games on something like something called Twitch or mm-hmm. what's some of the other ones uh, Mixer, yeah, um, Facebook Live, YouTube Live games. <laughs> okay, so there's a variety of channels mm-hmm. that this stuff is distributed in, but there's also live competitions where there will be stadiums where and, and how do these how do these work out in terms of live? Have you been to a live event in a stadium? Oh, I wish I have been, but uh, so far I haven't been to one. I'm planning to go probably next year to okay. a live one. How mm-hmm. do these? How are these set up? It's uh, pretty much like the traditional sports, and like two teams compete with each other, and uh, they will be put into two rooms, kind of surrounded with glasses to be soundproof. So okay, so the fans are watching the players in glass booths, yeah, the teams, yeah. And then they're also watching the game on the jumbotron on the wide screens. Okay. Yeah, yeah, of course. So uh, it's um, broadcasted through the wide screens, and uh, it's like people, the players won't be really displaying anything in the rooms. It's mainly the in-game content people are watching, but uh, having the players actually being there actually being more involving compared to like you watch at home with some friends. Since okay. there's so much competition, do you consider esports a real sport, Ja? Well, I would just say um, if you consider chess a real sport, I would say esport is <laughs> sport. <laughs> I, I teach a I teach a class on sports analytics here at Emory, and inevitably this issue comes up: this question of what is a sport, and in particular, does an esport qualify? So, Ja, say chess is a sport. I, I mean, it, it ends up kind of being this this mm-hmm. kind of strange conversation. Ada, do you find video games a sport? Chess a sport? I would probably say no. <laughs> but I'm not a gamer, so I, it's hard for me to relate. Well, I, I mean, so so sports involves, you know, this definition of sports is definitely something kind of imprecise, right? So it's like, so some level of competition. Check, right? Mm-hmm. So esports and chess um that there's got to be some level of strategy to it people will often say that i think where the the break point comes is that someone will also especially if i'm doing this in a a classroom setting someone will put out there well you gotta sweat or you've Mm got to actually move your body right right the physical aspect of it is what how a lot of people see or define what is a sport yeah, but but you know this this argument used to this argument existed well before esports came online, and it was usually sent around questions of like, is bowling a sport? <laughs> That's a good question. 
I don't know. And, and, and I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like there might have been a comedian back in the day that would, you know, make, put the line out there. It's like, well, you know, if you can drink a beer while you do it, it's not a sport. But, but you know, there, there's got to be a continuum where you've got bowling. Yeah, well, I don't dart. Know, yeah, darts. That's a big thing in UK, I think. Will ESPN show it on TV? And then you've got darts, pool, mm-hmm. poker. Is poker a sport? Probably not. And then the question becomes, does it, does it even matter, right? If you do consider it a sport, you probably have to, you compare it, you know, apples to apples, right? Would you compare that to football? Or can you compare yeah. apples to oranges and still consider two different things a sport? Well, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be sort of agnostic on this one. I think esports, video game seems like it's trivializing. Mm. I'm not sure if those, if the people in the industry like that term. Mm. There's definitely a level of physical talent that comes into this, yep. right? I mean, these are people with probably extraordinary reflexes. Yeah, definitely. Especially in some games, reflex is almost everything. <laughs> so in, in some ways, I can imagine it's almost, you know, and, and again, this is where this gets tough. Is this almost like playing at quarterback in the NFL? where you take the snap, you take two, two, three steps back, and then you've got to look at a chaotic scene in front of you and make very quick judgments and then mm-hmm. have the reflexes to put the ball where it needs mm-hmm. to be. Ja, is that about sort of what, what, what does it take to be a great esports athlete? Uh-huh. Uh, well, the esports is a very broad category. There are a lot of games in it. Some are more on the casual side, the more strategy-heavy, like the card games. Well, those games don't usually involve reflexes. Well, mm-hmm. you have like 90, 90 seconds to decide your next move. Then according to what information you have about your opponent and yourself, you make a move. And so there's some other sports games like um, mobile games that in those games, reflexes plays a very important role. So when you and your opponents meet each other, you need to be the first one to make a move. That uh, gave you a very good um, advantage in the combat. In that way, I would say, yeah, in some esports events, it's really important to have good reflexes. Yeah, well, I mean, from my knowledge of this, it's uh, it's an interesting, uh, where the athletes come from is even something interesting, where, where these uh, the athletes tend to be very young, right? Yeah. To the point where maybe the athletes are over the hill when they reach their early to mid-20s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you rarely can find an esports athlete, especially in those uh, games that involves fast reflexes, like past 30. It's like you just a little slow, like 0.01 seconds slower, but you just you just lost your combat. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I remember talking to some of the folks at, uh, at Hi-Rez about this, and when they're involved in running esports competitions, that one of the reasons, and, you know, it makes sense after they explain it to you, that, you know, they actually bring the teams to their facility to compete against each other because it can be a really significant difference if people are in remote locations and mm-hmm. the Wi-Fi, and I think something like that the ping rate might be yeah, different. Yeah, ping in terms of you know truly fractions of fractions of seconds mm-hmm. leading to very different outcomes yeah i think like uh for some of the more competitive esports like events like lag is the last thing you want to have mm-hmm. like lag means like uh once i take an action the difference between i made the action with my mouse or pa- uh, keyboard and uh, my character in the game like actually do it for example, some games can be between games from China and games from the U.S. Then this lag is pretty big, and uh, really mess up players like making decisions in the game, and maybe the results even. Okay. Well, let, let's talk about that for a second. So, mm-hmm. players can compete, 
and I think this is both on the professional sports side and just in terms of the casual players, you can play someone in China from the U.S. Mm-hmm. So this is a true worldwide phenomenon, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, and so where are you from? I'm from China. Okay. <laughs> and so you, you, your knowledge, how, how does the industry look on a worldwide basis? You know, where are the... Where, where is this big? You know, what, what, are the, what do the economics look like in terms of the important markets mm-hmm. across the globe? Sure. So, well, let's talk about the gaming industry in general. So this industry makes massive amount of revenue. Its uh, income last year is over $100 billion. Okay. Yeah. To give you a comparison, so the global box revenue last year is only $40.6 billion. Okay, so interactive games, about $100 billion versus mm-hmm. about $40 billion in terms of motion picture box office numbers. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. And well, the- let, let, me, let me say something about that because, you know, as, as we tape this, my kids have been playing Red Dead Redemption 2 over yep. the weekend. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the budget on a game like... Red Dead Redemption 2 is probably over $100 million. Right? Oh, it's way over that. This okay. is one of the most expensive games ever made. So what are we talking about? Like about $200 million budgets? I think they say it's about $5 billion, but that's probably an exaggerate. But all I know is they spent a lot of money on well, it. Well, but, but the, the <laughs> point is, I remember a few years ago, it was that the, the budgets for these big mm-hmm. video games started to become comparable and then quickly rocketed past... Mm-hmm the budgets for uh, major motion pictures. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I think the, you know, comparing a, you know, a hit video game mm-hmm. title, the movie industry is probably a great place to, it's one of the, it's one of the things that makes this so fascinating. Some of it mm-hmm. looks like the entertainment industry in terms of mm-hmm. movies, in terms of the scale, the mm-hmm. box office, the production costs. And some of it looks a lot like traditional sports in terms of the competitive mm-hmm. aspects. A lot of the techniques that is used in nowadays video games are actually pretty much resemble the techniques like you can find in the movie making process like the motion kind of uh, capturing technique for movies like avatar i think like they use a lot of that so for the red dead redemption 2 so they want to have they want to make uh as lively as possible especially for like horses when they kind of uh, run around. So they actually use the motion capture kind of technology for that. And they, that's how a lot of money, how that's spent on the well, game. Well, that's, um, see, is, is the motion capture, is that the stuff where they've got a bunch of electrodes on the person? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. See, I remember them talking about that in terms of like the Madden football game mm-hmm. way back, you know, yeah. way back in the yeah. day. Do you um, know how long it takes to make a video game? Depends on how ambitious you are. So uh, some of the indie games may take a uh, much shorter time, like a year. Some may take like four to five years to just make one game. Oh, wow, four to five years. Yeah. yeah. I think it's the same kind of cycle as Hollywood blockbusters, mm-hmm. right? They're, in terms of, you know, some of these big franchises like Fast and Furious or Star Wars, you know, two, three years to make mm-hmm. every new edition. Mm-hmm. No, I think there's, and that's why I think there's a lot of similarities there, right? Where franchise is the, is the right word, right? Yeah. Trying to keep people going from, you know, one game, you know, mm-hmm. one edition to the next. Oh, yeah. Like uh, some giants in this industry, like Activision, Blizzard, was able to um, have some established franchises or titles, like Call of Duty. Well, yeah, Call of Duty and that. And, well, also... and I, I just throw that out there, mm-hmm. given that I'm not an active player, mm-hmm. but I, I know some of these oh, things, yeah. right? <laughs> 
Yeah, like Diablo, like um, StarCraft, they make series. So one, two, three. Like Diablo now is up to three, and um, BlizzCon is next week. So people are expecting something from Blizzard about Diablo. Maybe there's some like new information about new uh, games or maybe pack patches. Let's change direction just just a little bit here. Different business models in uh, in this uh, video game realm. So you know the, these games where you can play worldwide. What is this this terminology of MOBA? Mm-hmm. What's that stand for? That's a multiplayer online battle arena. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, like players are put into two teams, they compete with each other, and their ultimate goal is to take down the opponent's main structure. Actually, you know, I, I don't know the answer to this. Very mm-hmm. often, I, my sense is a lot of those games are uh, free-to-play. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the free-to-play business model, how prevalent is that in, in the video game industry? And, and, I, and I'll say this, for, for folks my generation, and you know, I think when we think of video game titles, we think of, you know, you've got a console and you're paying $50, $60, $70 mm-hmm. for a disc or a cartridge. But that's, that's changed a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as of last year, our perception about the gaming industry in the past is mostly on the console side. But nowadays, mobile platform has taken over. It's the biggest market now. So last year, the console part sector has generated $8.3 billion as revenue, while the mobile sector generated about $6 billion. So it's much bigger. And PC is about $33 billion. Now the free-to-play business model has been the trend, and it's over 60% of the games published last year use this free-to-play business model, especially on the mobile side of things. Okay, so how can that work? It's free to play. How do I make money at this deal? You just told me these things take hundreds of millions of dollars to produce a title. How do I get the money back? And this this was a, I know the answer to this, but this was a head scratcher to me mm-hmm. at first. Very different. Yeah, so like the content is free uh, for players to have access to. However, there are options uh, offered in the game that is um, like you can only acquire by paying cash. So the in-game purchase options or microtransactions are the major source of income. And also for some of the mobile games, they leverage their customer base for doing advertisements as well. Mm -hmm. So that's their major resource of income. And And apparel too, right? Just people buying swag. Oh, yeah. That's part of the in-game purchase options like apparel, skins, aesthetic items, and also characters as well that can be purchased as an alternative alternative way to play the game. But so were you aware of that, Ada, that a lot of the way that these companies make money is by selling aesthetic items within the games? I did know that okay. just because we had lunch with Todd Harris. <laughs> so I cheated. Okay. <laughs> he told us. It's a fascinating thing, right? I mean, you think about traditional sports and it's almost like going to the game for free and then you know they just make the money selling jerseys on the way out the door. I mean, I mean, it's it's a very it, at first it seems like a strange business model. Do you have any sense of where the, why that model developed? I'm also curious about who's the first person kind of came up with this selling skins kind of idea. But um, well, it's just easy to do in the game. It just uh, change the pictures, and uh, uh, yeah. also it's it's also uh, in a lot of way not very interruptive as a plane. So. A lot of the skins don't change in-game play. Well, have you purchased skins? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. 
Okay, and why do you purchase? Why do you decide to purchase a skin? If if you see someone that has a different skin, how does that make you feel? How do you decide to cross the line that I'm going to buy this? Oh, I think at yeah. first you the have consumer to, behavior uh, side of this. Oh yeah, so at first you have to like the skin, so it probably looks better compared to the default ones. And also in the game, it actually may signal something like I really like the game. I'm a veteran. I'm invested. So I think that's also part of the value offered by those skins. So if you're using kind of a limited, a limited edition skin, that means you're really a veteran in this game. So it's the the key is that the skin was only offered three years ago. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Yeah, like um, Smite, which is a product by Hi-Res, they have some limited uh, version skins. So they're when they're off the market, they're just uh, they retire. So you cannot um, have access to it or any other way to get it anymore. It's kind of great. It's um, sort of this. It's a very kind of core marketing concept. This idea of creating artificial scarcity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, you know, maybe the most famous recent example of this was uh, you know I'm going to relate video games to Beanie Babies now because that was that was very much the Beanie Baby business model. Or if they would put limited, you know, it was kind of a funny situation. The company was sort of bad at supply chain, bad at production planning. They figured out a way to turn that into, you know, in, into something that was appealing to consumers because, oh, you know, the the purple panda is is very rare and it's going to sell out. So the skins kind of leverage the same sort of idea. Yeah, I think so. That was a great example. I forgot about the Beanie Babies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, the Beanie Babies, uh, Beanie Babies, and um, Defense of the Ancients, and mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Esports. And video games are linked, I think, is mm-hmm. one of the things I, I picked up in our conversation. Mm-hmm. So what is the relationship between watching and playing? Yeah, it's a very... Um, and I'm, I'm asking you both as an avid gamer mm-hmm. and as a... Viewer of at, Well, but <laughs> and also as a um, marketing scientist. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. what is the relationship? And, you know, so how do you... How do these things end up reinforcing or working in opposition mm-hmm. to each other? Yeah. I think uh, it's kind of an interesting relationship. I would say it's uh, playing is more like uh, actively pursuing something. You want to win, you want to enjoy the game. Viewing is more like passive. Uh, so you absorb, you watch, you absorb, and you learn from the pro players. So playing is more engaging and also more exhausting. What comes first? Uh, I think it can be various ways. I would say usually play comes first. Uh, some of the video games are not the best um, the video game events so there's a lot of happening on the screen and if you're a newbie you don't know anything you're so confused but once you start to play the game you experience it with your own hands then you start to get a grab of what's really going on then that's how you can learn so oh this can be done this way so i would say usually it's play comes first then uh, the esports events start to making sense to play okay so in this esports the and i'm using this as a shorthand for mm-hmm. the watching. So the watching follows the playing. So somehow the, the companies have got to get you in the door mm-hmm. to start playing the game, and then the watching becomes something to reinforce the playing? Mm-hmm. I think so. And well, they do that by offering free-to-play games, so you can download and start now without paying anything. So th- this is why this becomes a really kind of interesting area for academic study. Okay, so we've got this relationship between viewing and playing. We also have a bunch going on in terms of what drives playing, don't we? Mm-hmm. So what do we have going on there? Yeah. 
and this is uh this is actually the topic of Joe's dissertation mm-hmm. so he is he is if not the worldwide expert he is very much near the top in terms of thinking about these issues so mm-hmm. what drives playing yeah so um games when you think about it it's kind of a um structure that offers provides goals for players to pursue in the game so when you play games you're just not wandering around you have a goal you want to achieve something so those the games they provide incentive schemes those are the goals well, and the, the way you said that so my goal is mm-hmm. to win right or is there something more than that yeah well depends on the type of games you play so for some of the pvp or player versus player heavy games the goal is to beat your component opponents uh, for something more um, kind of player versus environment kind of games, your goal is to achieve something in the game, like you want to achieve certain level, you want to acquire some uh, items, you want to finish the plot, yeah, missions. So those are more of the goals for the more uh, player versus environment kind of games. Okay, so so one of the things to keep people playing is there's sort of this constant level of we use the word goal, but there's always mm-hmm. like a challenge or something else. Someone yeah. wants to get mission, to challenge, conquest, finish the mission, mm-hmm. level up. Mm-hmm. I don't know, earn a reward. Yeah, I think for like the um, player versus player games, you want to become better at the game, uh, skill wise. You want to beat your opponents and, to, uh, in a way, get stronger and be better opponents. On the more like role playing games, you want to foster or nurture your character to see it uh, grow into a much stronger one and have bigger impact, have better equipments. Those are the ways to um, kind of have uh, feedbacks or like benefits from the game. So you kind of have the sense of achievement. When players beat the game, do they mm-hmm. often play it again or are they just done with it? Is it like a one time thing? Yeah, that's actually very interesting. So some of the kind of smaller games, they're just like one-time experience. So we call it kind of virgin experience, very important. So uh, after you play your first playthrough... You said the virgin experience? Yeah. Okay. So after your first playthrough, like uh, the game doesn't offer much more benefits in addition to that. You, so you're done with the game. You move on to something else. Well, let me let me just interrupt here because I think one of the things that's... What we're trying to do mm-hmm. with this with the partnership and sort of moving into the realm of esports and video games is that there's just so many opportunities. Mm-hmm. And I think in terms of this conversation, we start to go in a bunch of different directions where you've got some games like Defense of the Ancients mm-hmm. or Smite, yeah, League of Legends, which are just playing um, team play that's sort of endless, right? Mm-hmm. It's sort of one-off thing of it's mm-hmm. like a, a, another game mm-hmm. versus some of these other games, which I don't know, what, what would you call things? Because I think what Ada's talking about are games like Grand Theft Auto or mm-hmm. Red Dead Redemption, mm-hmm. right? Where you're trying to, well, you, you, you tell me what I'm, what, I'm yeah. trying, what I'm failing to articulate. I think it's kind of different ways of generating utility from games. So some can be relying on you beating opponents. Some can be relying on you trying to grow a character. So there's like the Red Dead Redemption 2. That's a very open world game. So you can do anything you want. You want, you can become a villain. You can become a saint. All depends on your choices and your interactions with the game content. So PvP games are more like your interactions with Say the players. Again, P- PvP. P- player versus player. Player versus player games. So you interact mostly with other players in the game. Uh, player versus environment kind of games, you interact with the game content more in the way you, like you interact with the developer. 
So kind of experience what they want to deliver using those. Well, back content. in the day, it was almost like you were solving a game. Yeah. You know, it was, yeah, it's like a puzzle. So you want to see all the pieces and put it all together and like get the result. Like Mario, right. It's the only one I know. <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and I think, you know, at this point, there's probably um, these game manufacturers are building in both. And, mm-hmm. and when I think about it, it's like this is where it's interesting in terms of studying consumer behavior or mm-hmm. studying fans of these mm-hmm. games, right? Where, you know, I'll see my kids working through like Grand Theft Auto, right? Mm-hmm. But then once they've worked through that, then I think they just want to, there's also sort of the replayability, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think might have been what Ada was getting at of yeah. now we're going to drive around, you know, messing people up, beating people, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. So I think a lot of games nowadays, they have a main plot. So that's uh, the story they want to deliver. After you finish the main plot, they will have the world open to you. So you can explore. There are side missions. There are uh, contents that is beyond the main plot you can explore. So that's how they want uh, trying to engage players after they finish the main plot. Okay, so I think that gives us a good background in terms of what's going on. And like I said, it's it's probably tough to really give a thorough background because there's just so much happening. I mean, I, I like the term interactive entertainment for mm-hmm. this industry because yeah. I think that's, you know, because like I said, it looks a lot like the film or the the movie industry in terms of interesting content to view. But then there's also this competitive aspect and this ability to play people in China or Korea mm-hmm. across the world. From our perspective as a research group, I think there's tremendous opportunities to study fandom here. Mm-hmm. really tremendous things. And I think the biggest part of this issue is related to data. Now, you've actually played with some of this data, right? Mm-hmm. And so what does the data look like? I mean, and maybe that's a funny question to <laughs> ask, but you know, you think about the kind of data most companies have on their customers. What kind of data do these these game makers have mm-hmm. on their com- on their customers. Yeah, as of data quality, I would say data from games are actually phenomenal. So, like for the more traditional kind of industries, like when you go grocery shopping, like we know what you buy, but we we don't really know how you use it. Well, but it's even worse than that, right? I mean, so let's say Ada, let's say you go to where do you buy your groceries? Walmart. Okay. <laughs> okay. So when you buy your groceries at Walmart, you you might buy some coffee, some you might try buy Tide, Coke, etc. Walmart sees that, you know, mm-hmm. right? But Tide and Coke don't necessarily mm-hmm. see yeah. that. So it's even worse. Yeah. Right? Where, so where yeah. in this case, what does a high res or a Blizzard know? Mm-hmm. So the high-res or Blizzard or the developers, they they know everything from the beginning till the end. So players, when they first download and register, and possibly what um, platform they use, and also how much time they spent, what um, uh, characters they used, and um, how much they spend, their interactions with other players in the game, all those information is recorded because all the behaviors are actually done in the game. So everything's digital. Yeah. Right. And so it goes beyond goes beyond just about anything. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. struggling to think of an example where they have so much um, data on mm-hmm. consumption, yeah. right? And time, you know, time histories of customers mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, it just offers immense uh, opportunities or information on customer relationship development. That's also um, developers are trying to find a way to manage the relationship and trying to expand 
the uh, life of a customer and also maybe convert them from the free users into pay users. There was even a South Park episode that focused on how these uh, free-to-play mm-hmm. companies develop these systems to get essentially, you know, in South Park to have these kids spending endless amounts of money for more and more gems, more mm-hmm. and more gold, these kind of things. Yeah, I think there's always, when you talk about free-to-play, you can't just uh, skip pay-to-win. So some people will just say, it's free-to-play, but in order to win, you have to pay, and sometimes a massive amount in the game. Yeah, yeah. I think of these things as very similar to some of the other work that's um, been done related to things like loyalty programs, mm-hmm. where you know we're taking some of the same concepts of incentivizing people mm-hmm. to to get points, whether mm-hmm. it's uh, airline miles or SNH green stamps, mm-hmm. now it's just to get points to, to level up in these yeah. games. The, the the other part is the viewing data, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't think you've spent a lot of time with that, but can you, I mean, so the viewing data is also something fairly unique, right? Yeah. So viewing in, in, in comparison to the traditional media platforms like TV or radio, um, there's a lot more that is observed by the platform, like their uh, browsing history. The, like for, for any pl- uh, viewers, when they start with a uh, streaming platform, they browse. They try to figure out what are the channels they really like because it's mostly um, they are streamers. They are of different personality. They stream different content. Also, schedule is different, very flexible. So for all that, the viewer needs to figure out who I want to watch. So that's kind of, it's a matching kind of story. Mm-hmm. And uh, in this process, the platform has a lot more information compared to the more traditional like TV. So I switch in between channels, but you don't really know what I'm really doing. I may just um, like doing some uh, like housework and my kids are playing with the controller, but you don't know that. Mm-hmm. And I think this is kind of the, where I see this as really an exciting area. And what I'm, what I'm hoping that we're going to do over the next, over the next couple of years is we're going to try at Emory and the analytics centers to build some intellectual leadership focused on this uh, area of esports and, and video games with with folks like Zhe, some other folks in the in the phd program i think there's a ton of potential my final thought as we as we start to move forward on this is to almost say this in terms you know think about what this would be like if we applied some of the, the ideas in terms of what the data is available to traditional sports and the example i thought of this morning is like this is almost the, the esports environment in terms of the being able to study fandom is almost the equivalent as if NFL teams could link game watching mm-hmm. on a second by second basis or a minute by minute basis. Um, link that data to fantasy football participation and link fantasy football success to things like buying tickets to NFL games and buying merchandise like jerseys and hats. So it's a really kind of a remarkable situation in terms of our ability to study fandom going forward. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And so for that, like I said, as we move into this partnership and start to, you know, investigate issues related to fandom, investigate issues related to gamification systems, 
Um, and really, we're just stretch, scratching the surface in this conversation today. There's a lot more that we can discuss. So as you continue to uh, hopefully enjoy the, the Fanalytics podcast, as always, you know, please subscribe on iTunes, and we drop an episode every other Thursday. Have your eyes out if you're especially interested in this area as we um, start to explore um, esports and video games. Thanks for having us, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thanks, guys.